Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. This week, we're discussing one of the most contentious questions in the world of digital assets right now, whether crypto should be classified as a security or a commodity. In this episode, I'm joined by Mike Selig, who's counsel in the Asset Management Department at Wilkie Gallagher and Farr, and a member of the Wilkie Digital Works practice. Mike's work centers on financial regulation of crypto and Web3. He advises clients on regulatory and enforcement, transactional, and legislative matters, which, let's be fair, makes him unquestionably an expert compared to me. Please note this conversation represents Mike's personal views and not those of his employer or his clients. So in the episode, Mike suggests something that I'd not understood was even possible, that a digital asset could start life as a security and at some point of sufficient project decentralization become a commodity. This insight completely shifted my perspective on the debate. We also cover recent developments related to the legality of staking and the impact of the proposed updates to the SEC custody rules. Now on the show this week, we take a break from the crypto crime topic, but if you're missing your fix, not to worry. The 2023 Chainalysis Crypto Crime Report is now available. As always, see the show notes for the download link. And if you'd like to meet the team behind the report live and in person, then you need to join me in New York City, April 4th and 5th, for the Chainalysis Links Conference, which is just two weeks away. Get your ticket if you're lucky enough to find one before the event sells out. As always, registration details are in the show notes. Today I'm joined by Mike Selig, who's counsel at Wilkie, Farr, and Gallagher LLP. Mike, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Mike, I think we've got a ton of headlines that have come out over the last four or five weeks that I want to jump into. But before we get to that, just to ground the audience a little bit, share some of your background. I, I'm always fascinated about how people get into crypto. I think you've been in the space professionally a long time and maybe even personally earlier than that. How'd you get started with crypto? Yeah. And, and first of all, just my standard disclaimer to all the uh, Anons listening. I am a lawyer, but I'm not your lawyer. So nothing I say today should be considered legal advice. I got into crypto pretty early. So it was really just Bitcoin back when I discovered it. And there was some Hacker News article or something that, that was describing this peer-to-peer money. And of course, coming out of the 90s, I, I was very familiar with peer-to-peer file sharing. Right? I'd use Navster and BitTorrent and all this sort of stuff. And so the idea of a peer-to-peer money where you can set up a node and kind of share the information that that's with respect to transactions as opposed to with respect to just sharing files and that sort of thing was really interesting to me. And I remember trying to set up a Bitcoin node. And at the time, there really wasn't a ton of software and support for that. And it was super complex. And I started to try and do it. But I actually decided I was going to go to law school around the same time. I went and took the LSAT and focused on, on applying to law schools instead and kind of forgot about it for a little while. And a few years later, I was actually working with the CFTC in the office of Christian Carlo, who is one of the former chairs of the agency. And we were looking at Bitcoin again, and it all kind of came back to me. And, and I started thinking through a lot of the legal and regulatory issues under the commodity laws and, and whether futures could be traded on Bitcoin and what the implications of that would be, whether it's a commodity or a security. And the general consensus within the agency, of course, was that it is a non-security and, and that there are going to be lots of these other types of crypto assets. And, and that's sort of what happened. And the question of whether they're securities or not really comes down to this investment contract tally analysis primarily. But the agency was, was happy to clear that. And I went on to private practice and really worked with all sorts of crypto ecosystem participants and developers across the stack ever since advising on securities and commodities law regulatory issues. 
That's a fascinating background. I'd, I'd love to maybe just go back in history a little bit to what you touched on there where CFTC is evaluating, hey, is Bitcoin a security or not? And how does this ecosystem evolve? Because that question still seems to be at issue today. And so you were you were looking at this 2014, 2015 timeframe? Yeah, that's right. In the early days, everybody was looking at Howie. Of course, there's a broader universe of different types of securities. But even to this day, that's primarily where the SEC focuses. And that, that's the same sort of analysis that we were looking at back at the agency. And I believe the SEC similarly was looking at at the time, the early analysis related to Bitcoin, because we didn't have this broad universe of crypto assets. But then, of course, we got Ether and really all of these meta tokens that were issued on top of Ether. I had kind of left the agency at that time, but that really prompted this broader look at the whole industry by the SEC. And then we got, of course, the Dow report in 20. 18. And ever since we've really been grappling whether this question of what's a security and what's not. Maybe if you can project a little bit, like, why is this an unanswered question? Like, I, I get if we had just launched Bitcoin yesterday, right? We're back in 2009. Maybe it's not a priority for the agency, or maybe it's technically complex and they want expert opinion to weigh in, or they want to see it develop a little bit further. But we're now 14, 15 years removed from that. Coming up on eight years, I think, since since Ethereum launched. Like, that seems like we should be able to answer this question kind of definitively and once and for all, right? The definition of a security is super broad. So there's all sorts of prongs of the definition. This concept of an investment contract, which is what the SEC focuses on, uh, is derived from a, an old Supreme Court case called SEC versus Howey. And in that case, the Supreme Court articulated a you know fairly simple test that you have in a, a contract, a scheme or a transaction where there is a person that invests money in a common enterprise and expects profits to be derived from the managerial or entrepreneurial efforts of some other. And the question of what fits within that is super nebulous. The idea that really any sort of asset where you have a team that's driving value could be security, in Gary Gensler's view, has led him to, to take this position that everything except Bitcoin potentially is a security. But on the other side of that, you can really think through the, the decentralized generative nature of a lot of these networks where the per persons who are purchasing these tokens aren't necessarily dependent upon some team or promoter. They might be looking to the broader ecosystem where you have lots of different applications uh, and use cases for each network. So it's, it's very similar to the email protocol or the internet protocol, uh, the World Wide Web, all these sorts of things where they're generative and people can build on top of them. And so you're not necessarily looking to the, the developer of that protocol. And that's where we are with a lot of these network assets. And you know the SEC takes a you know a view that's favorable to their jurisdiction, but many others have not taken that view. And the CFTC has taken a, a you know a narrower view in terms of construing jurisdiction, but still uh, has asserted that Ether and Bitcoin and, and many stable coins are commodities that are non-securities. And so it regulates those to the extent they come within its jurisdiction over derivatives and, and its anti-fraud jurisdiction over spot markets. So you bring up an interesting point, right? We've got this moment of inflection where Gary Gensler has expressed publicly now he believes every cryptocurrency besides Bitcoin is a security. That's obviously not you know official in terms of an SEC rule or any sort of legislation coming out of Congress. And I think there's probably other agencies with some regulatory oversight to the market that would maybe disagree with that position. But let's theoretically say that what we've heard from Chairman Gensler gets becomes the de facto rule of the land in the U.S. Like, what's the implication of that if all cryptocurrency, say Bitcoin, is treated as a security? And I imagine there's multiple layers to it when we think about the ecosystem. Like, 
a node validator versus a project team creating a, a new meta token versus potentially an exchange or a market maker. Can you just play through some of those scenarios for us? Yeah, absolutely. A lot, a lot to unpack there. So the implication is huge to, to be short, but the problem is that under this administration, there's not as much willingness to engage and provide the exemptive relief or changes to the regulations that would be needed to make this work. So basically taking an entire industry or ecosystem that has flourished under a non-securities regulatory framework. Of course, there's fraud and all these sorts of issues, but really the ecosystem's grown. We've got all sorts of network participants and applications built on these networks. To bring all of that within the securities regulatory perimeter would totally derail how everything currently works as it's set up today. And similarly, on the centralized custodial side, a lot of these platforms are not operating the way that you would have platforms operating within a securities regulatory framework. So that's the real implication. But to unpack each layer, really starting with issuance. So Gary Gensler has said that you just file a form, it's no big deal, you know, you can issue securities real easily, but it's not that simple. So you, you would have to potentially file an S1 and, and do a public offering of securities or use some of the private placement exemptions or what's called Reg S, doing a sale offshore. And so there are some routes there. You don't necessarily have to file the form that Gary's referencing, but all of this comes with regulatory implication. So when you do a private placement, there's restricted securities that are offered. They don't have all of the same freely transferable features that you would have within a typical securities context or within the typical crypto context for sure. But if you're doing a public offering, filing Form S1 is not a simple task and it, it requires a lot of information that's really inconsistent with decentralization. So it assumes there's a centralized registrant. So at the outset, we're, we're kind of assuming that there's not this decentralized project and things are kind of being generated from various contributors and all of that. You're opting into this world where there's some centralized business essentially. And so it looks a lot more like what we see in the typical equities and securities markets today. There's a bunch of information that you have to provide about the business, about financials, about you know management, all of these sorts of things. And a lot of the questions and, and requirements are, are pretty burdensome and, and inconsistent just with the way that these businesses operate. So that's hurdle number one. In terms of actually providing the prospectus with all that information and marketing the securities and all of that, it's really inconsistent as well with how these networks are built and delivered to users today, where you have a test net, for example. Would that fall as some sort of illegal marketing under the gun jumping rules? What can these developers do? Who is an underwriter? And underwriter of course, have to be registered with the SEC as broker-dealers. And right now, there's not a regime for broker-dealers really to play in the crypto asset space. There's what's called these special purpose broker-dealers that can only trade in crypto assets, they can't touch other securities, and they can't touch non-security crypto assets. So it's, it's pretty limited. There are very few, if any, of these. And national securities exchanges where these things would trade, there's currently not a single one that, that offers crypto asset securities. So there's really not a, a, an ecosystem for this. And then, of course, when we talk about transferability and use of these digital objects within consumptive applications, right? Like you could have an artist that's issuing NFTs that wants to airdrop additional collectible items and, and NFTs and things to their collectors. That's all going to be requiring registration statements and, and private placements and all of that. It's really inconsistent with the way the market works today. Like the whole market's just inconsistent with the way this works today. And then if you look at the current exchange, 
exchanges that are operating as custodial centralized platforms, the way that national securities exchanges have to be set up, you can't mix custody and exchange. You would have broker dealers that are members of the exchange and you as a, a retail customer wouldn't have direct access to the exchange. You would go to your broker dealer and the broker dealer trades on your behalf. Or if you're a registered investment advisor, you have to have a separate custodian under the custody rule and interact with broker dealers in that way. So everything's kind of segregated out from the exchange. And that's just not the way that these exchanges are set up in, in the crypto world today. The entire experience that people who are in the crypto ecosystem today kind of know and expect doesn't work if we take the current securities laws, which are really built for companies to become publicly traded largely. The application of that framework makes no sense. So when people are arguing that there needs to be regulatory clarity, I think unpacking that a little further is, is what you've just done really elegantly here. It's not as simple as, well, every project or token issuer needs to go file an S1. That S1 framework is just not built for the thing that a team creating a new token or creating a new crypto-related project is trying to do, and certainly not for an artist issuing digital print-type experience as an NFT. Like that, you end up with a misfit-for-purpose type situation. So, Mike, we had some big news. It just broke Thursday, March 9th, depending on when we, when we shipped the episode. But New York Attorney General Letitia James filed an action against KuCoin. But the embedded in that was the suggestion that a number of cryptocurrency assets were securities. Talk to us about your, your understanding of the lawsuit. What are they trying to do? And, and what's the implication of that? Does that kind of support Chairman Gensler's position that everything's a security? Yeah, and so a handful of weeks ago, the SEC also brought an action against Doquan and Terraform Labs that alleges that the assets within that ecosystem, including Luna and UST, are securities. The The same allegations are being made here in, in less depth. The allegation is that UST, Luna, and then also Ether, which is, is the novel aspect here, are securities as well as commodities. And so that this case involves allegations that KuCoin should have been registered as both a commodity broker dealer as well as a securities exchange or broker dealer. And the interesting fact here really, in, in my view, is, is this allegation related to Ether. This is the first time that any regulator has formally made the argument that Ether should be regulated as a security. And of course, they are relying on the Howey test as well as some of the state securities analysis that's a little bit different. The Howey analysis is really the point that's interesting because this is the same sort of analysis that the SEC typically looks at. But of course, this is a, a state case. It's not the SEC making this point. And the Commodity Futures Trading Commission currently continues to regulate Ether futures markets, which is interesting. So futures contracts traded on Ether would only be within the CFTC's exclusive jurisdiction if the underlying asset, Ether itself, is a non-security commodity. Otherwise, the SEC would regulate that as security-based swaps. And so the fact that there's really this disagreement amongst the SEC potentially, or at least the chair, Gary Gensler, with respect to this, because he has said that all crypto assets except for Bitcoin are securities in his view. But of course, the agency has not formalized that view in any way. And then the CFTC taking the view that Ether and stablecoins and Bitcoin and many others are non-security commodities. And now we're seeing the, the state of New York take this action. And the arguments are pretty weak here, in my view. I think it, it's a little bit of a potentially publicity stunt, and who knows where it leads. And, and of course, it could create some bad precedent um, and precedent the SEC could leverage potentially as well, to the extent that 
that we get a, a full born discussion and analysis coming out of this. But the arguments being made by the state of New York relate to the efforts of the Ethereum developers, management, founders to promote Ether as an investment and then also engage in efforts to transition the network from a proof of work network to proof of stake, which isn't entirely complete yet because we, we don't have withdrawals enabled. The Shanghai update is, is supposed to be in the next month or two. So it creates some interesting drama now that, that we have this update coming. But the idea that these efforts are the essential managerial efforts that others are relying on when they purchase and hold Ether seems a bit nonsensical to me. The real efforts that people are looking to are decentralized. There's no individual or person or group or manager that you're looking to when you have a generative network like Ethereum. So there, there are thousands and thousands of applications and tokens and NFTs and users and unique wallets and so much that's been done on top of Ethereum. And we've seen, for example, in the context of other networks such as Solana, where you have big projects moving from one chain to another, as we just saw with the Degods project moving over to Ether, the Utes project moving to Polygon, that can potentially impact the price of the token because there are these massive projects that are on these networks that people are looking at and interested in using the networks for. And it's not a crazy concept, right? When you look at like a mall or something, you have an anchor tenant or you have different attractions in the mall that makes you more likely to go there. You know, you don't look to Simon or Westfield or, or you know, the manager of the mall. Uh, you're looking to potentially what's located there. And that, that's really the line of reasoning under this Howey test. The expectations have to be those essential managerial efforts. And it just seems absurd to me that the state of New York's making the argument that people are really looking to Vitalik or looking to the, the Ethereum team. I don't know if, if the average person buying Ether is really aware of who Tim Bako is or some of these other contributors. So it's a little bit of a silly argument, but it's being made here and, and it could have implications. But I think we can take some comfort in the fact that the SEC is not formally taking this position. The CFTC continues to regulate Ether futures markets. But it's a, it's a little bit of a scary development, especially in light of, of all the other chaos that's been in the news. I'm curious to pull on a thread that you're bringing up there. Like when I think about Ethereum, it looks like a lot of non-crypto open source projects, right? There's thousands of people who have a loose affiliation or interest in participating in a project, but most of them don't work for a common employer. They're not getting a paycheck from the same corporate entity. They collaborate in open forums, right? A Discord channels or on, you know, GitHub kind of managing a code base collectively. When I look at that, you know, just as a layperson, not a lawyer, to me, I'm like, that's that's clearly not an, a common enterprise. It's a group of people who are working towards a shared goal or interest, but that's very different than a company going out and raising venture capital and, you know, which is kind of a commitment to earn a future profit, a variety of structures there. But there certainly are things in crypto that are much more closely held. Smaller project team, all employed by maybe a labs type function that's affiliated with a foundation that's operating the project. Just on the surface, again, as a layperson, that looks very different to me. And many of those, I think, are aware that they're not truly decentralized, but there's a necessary like bootstrapping of the project that has to happen. So a lot of them have decentralization roadmaps where, hey, we're going to build core functionality, make this useful. And then over some period of time, we want to decentralize control and participate so that there isn't that common entity. 
I do wonder, though, in the eyes of financial regulators and the law, does that matter? It's a point that seems to be talked about a lot, and I don't know that it changes the evaluation of is it a security or a commodity or something else entirely. This is the great challenge of all crypto lawyers in this space because there's this chicken and egg problem. Nothing starts out decentralized. There's always some force that brings it into existence. Satoshi Nakamoto, the Ethereum team, certainly brought the Ethereum, the network, into existence through their efforts. But the real issue around common enterprise and investment of money and, and these earlier prongs of the Howey analysis, the problem is that you cannot conflate these early fundraising efforts with what exists today. And so the New York action is actually interesting in this regard, because whether Ether was a security when it was first sold for investment purposes, when there was this capital formation happening, and and there were these efforts undertaken to build the network, that's really separate from the question of today, whether when you go on to KuCoin or one of these exchanges to buy Ether, whether you're still really funding that effort and involved in that capital formation. And so there's this distinction between secondary sales and primary sales. And, you know, I was at a, a CFTC meeting the other day and Val Sapanek spoke, who's the head of FinHub at the SEC, and she really has a different way of framing it, which I think is, is really the Clayton era framing, the framing that former director of corporate fin, Bill Hinman, also alluded to in, in one of his famous speeches related to decentralization. There can be these assets that are initially sold, they're offered and sold as securities because at the time there is not decentralization. And that makes a whole lot of sense. Commissioner Hester Peirce has also alluded to this idea that you could have something start out as a centralized project. And of course, if you're fundraising and and raising capital and selling the token to do that, there's this legal wrapper of an investment contract and the token really represents that or is part of that. And so perhaps when it gets transferred in the early days when you don't have decentralization, transferring a security. But once the project really becomes generative and you have all sorts of novel applications and use cases and you're not looking to the same team And of course, they're not fundraising by selling the token or even holding large amounts of it and promoting it to try and drive value. And and there isn't this common enterprise where purchasers are looking to the team, the team's looking to to purchasers, and there's kind of like this collective effort. At that point, there really should not be application of the securities laws because there's no information asymmetry. The team doesn't have better information about whether some large tenant, a large project is going to move chains or do something big on the network, or whether Claire Silver you know, an NFT artist, her, her work's going to be featured in the Louvre. That could bring a whole lot of attention to Ethereum and, and NFTs and all of that. That could boost the price of Ether. I mean, there's so many contingencies and it's really hard to piece together who you're looking to, right? It's a decentralized market and there aren't necessarily external dependencies related to the team. And of course, as open source software, you can have new developers cropping up every day that could contribute major aspects to these networks. And, and that has been the case with Ethereum where you have all sorts of developers that have proposed various EIPs and those EIPs then become promulgated and basically become part of the network. And it's a very different world that we're living in in this new era of crypto assets and crypto networks where we really have these network assets that live and are associated with generative networks. And they're very much akin to 
other commodities in the physical world, like wheat and gold, that you can use them for all sorts of purposes and that the market's decentralized. You know, when you have oil as a commodity and OPEC takes some action, it can drive the price of oil. But that's not to say that OPEC is the issuer of oil and, and can really fill out a Form S1 and register that as a security. It just doesn't make sense. And yeah. of course, you have projects that are centralized and sure, maybe they should file a form and, and register the securities initially. But we can't live in a world where these live as securities forever without some serious exemptive relief from the SEC. This is an idea I'd never heard anyone put forth, that you start as a security, and this would be, I think, akin to a newly formed technology startup raising angel investment or a seed round. They might have an agreement like a, a safe they're only allowed to sell shares in that company to accredited investors. There's some other legal documentation that goes around it. That allows kind of initial formation of capital, but rather than progressing that entity forward to some acquisition or public offering, you're actually saying it could then deform and become a decentralized collection of, of individuals, not a common interest. And in doing so, then the elements of the project become commodities. They're able to transform from security to commodity. Yeah, there, there's some point in time when, when the information asymmetries are very different. You no longer have this special information as the issuer of that security because it's generative. There's all yeah. sorts of use cases, all sorts of things that can be done in the network. Satoshi Nakamoto may have never envisioned that ordinal uh, NFTs would be on top of Bitcoin. And so to rely upon Satoshi Nakamoto to make disclosures under a Form S1 about ordinals and all the crazy things that can be done on Bitcoin, that would just be absurd. Is there any precedent for that type of security to commodity transition that we've seen? Is there is there anything that people can think about as a pattern to try and follow here? So in the world up to crypto, no, because there there's never really been this, this idea that you could have a network asset before. I think it's a novel yeah. concept. But the SEC under the Clayton administration did endorse this viewpoint. Former director of corporation finance, Bill Hinman, said that Ether may have started out as a security, but it's certainly not one today because it's sufficiently decentralized. And continuing even under the Gensler administration, some of these enforcement action settlements, in the order, there's been a line saying that the securities can be deregistered at some point in the team's discretion, but they need to be registered as one of the undertakings. That that leaves open this idea that maybe even the SEC endorses this view, but certainly the current administration has been hesitant to say that anywhere aside from these enforcement actions, where a lot of these actions probably started under the Clayton administration anyway. All right. So Mike, you took us through this world where everything's a security. Let's play the reverse game and take a look at everything or most things in the crypto ecosystem become commodities. What's the implication for the different layers of the ecosystem and participants in that reality? So I think we can map onto the world of digital objects, the concepts and constructs that we have in the physical and traditional world, where you have certain assets that are regulated by the CFTC when their derivatives traded on them because they're commodities like wheat, corn, pork bellies, those sorts of assets. And then you have certain other financial assets that fall within the definition of security and are certainly regulated by the SEC and state regulators as well. And then you have these other digital objects that look a lot more like collectibles and consumer items and artwork and media. And those things aren't regulated in the same way as financial assets. And it's an interesting concept because you have commodities like corn and wheat that sometimes become regulated by the CFTC by virtue of there being derivatives traded on those. Otherwise, the CFTC only looks at fraud and manipulation in those markets. And, and the reason the CFTC regulates that is because you have these derivatives traded on them. So 
So that concept of what is a commodity for purposes of CFTC regulation really comes back to this question of can you trade futures contracts on it? Can you have derivatives trading on that asset? And the courts and the CFTC have said most crypto assets you can have derivatives trading on because they're fungible and, and you can write a futures contract on it, but some you wouldn't be able to. And that makes a lot of sense because the CFTC is not in the business of regulating action figures and, and other sorts of collectibles. And so I think that's the world that we need to get to in digital objects where you, you don't have to rush to regulate everything as a financial regulator. There are areas that make sense to be regulated as a financial regulator. There are certainly capital raising efforts made by some of these digital asset businesses, and some of the digital assets kind of come within the scope of that investment contract, as we were discussing, but others don't. And a lot of these decentralized networks that have a native asset, they're generative, and so it doesn't make sense to regulate them any more than it makes sense to regulate wheat. There are efforts on the Hill to have some sort of legislative package that would give broader authority to the CFTC to regulate the exchanges where these digital commodities trade, which makes a lot of sense because the markets are very different from typical physical markets. We can actually have a lot of liquidity and instant trading and all of that sort of thing. And we've only really had that today in the world of digital commodities with environmental assets like renewable energy credits. But we could see a world where the CFTC gets jurisdiction to regulate potentially even those markets as well. But these novel digital commodity markets where you can have market manipulation and wash trading and, and a lot of manipulative behavior that you wouldn't get in a physical market where you're trading warehouse receipts and that sort of thing. And so I, I think the sentiment on the Hill is to get some sort of legislation done ultimately that, that gives that authority to the CFTC. But there's also a world where, where the SEC gets it all. But it, it seems unlikely at this stage that there won't be some regulation of the spot markets for digital assets. You know, I hope that we're not going to be here in five, seven years from now still debating, is it a security? Is it a commodity? If we can get some resolution on that, I feel like it unlocks an entire generation of innovation that I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to in this space. Shifting to some of the recent news, we touched on staking earlier. So there was a, an action and I think settlement related to Kraken's staking program. Can you unpack the implications of that for us? I mean, I think Kraken agreed to close their staking program as part of the settlement there. But like, what does that mean for the rest of the Ethereum network, businesses that are operating staking as a service or liquid staking? What should we expect in the future related to this topic? There's really a spectrum of different types of staking activities. So starting out with just operating your own node, setting aside 32E, running a validator, staking that directly through the network. The network organically generates these network rewards, additional units of ether that you receive. And then once the unlock is enabled within the network, you're able to withdraw that if, if you choose to. Setting aside that direct staking model, you have some of these applications and programs that have been designed to offer staking to others that don't necessarily want to operate their own node. You have liquid staking staking protocols that really model for the most part, you know, there, there's obviously variation within the different applications, but model and mirror how the Ethereum network works and how other staking networks work, where you're able to deposit assets into a smart contract and the smart contract programmatically allocates those to validators and you're earning rewards organically from the network. And the same kind of 
fashion that you would if you were staking directly, but you don't require that 32 ETH because there's this fungible bulk of assets that are within a smart contract that satisfies that 32 ETH. And 32 ETH are allocated to each validator node or, or plus if, if you allocate more. And that gets you over that hump, but it's not really a program where there's any sort of management or efforts engaged to decide, okay, we're going to stake these assets to this network. We're going to stake the others to another network, or we're not going to stake certain assets assets so we can offer instant liquidity and withdrawals and that sort of thing. If the Ethereum network allows withdrawals, users of the liquid staking protocol can go get their withdrawals. And it really looks a lot like direct staking, but you get this receipt that allows you to transfer the legal and beneficial ownership of what's in that protocol, what you've put in. So if you put in five ETH, you have a receipt or multiple receipts that evidence your ownership of the five ETH. As network rewards accrue, you have either more receipts or a you know a larger amount represented by each receipt. And that allows, similar to warehouse receipts and bills of lading and documents of title, you to transfer legal and beneficial ownership of the digital commodity while it's within this staking facility or contract. Staking programs where a custodian is offering staking through through their, their platform where you're giving assets to the custodian to put within a pool and manage that pool can also similarly vary, but they're on a, a, you know, I think the next step of the spectrum because there's this manager, this custodian program operator that now has access to these assets and can decide what to do with them. There's a user agreement typically with these platforms that dictates whether you own those assets or whether you've given them to the manager in a similar way to a money market fund or an investment pool so that there's variation there. But what happens in a lot of these programs and what the SEC has been focused on is where the manager of that program holds back some assets, decides to stake some, keep some as a, a pool for liquidity reserves, and allows users to come in and pull their assets out easily, which is something you couldn't do on the network today, and also offer a fixed rate of return and other sorts of features and functionalities that are just distinct from the way that staking works on the network, and then promoting that as, as an investment, really giving a fix, you know, fixed rate of return is very different from what you're getting on Ethereum, where it's variable. It depends on the consistency of when you're selected to propose a block by having a large pool and kind of managing that you get more consistent rewards and and not necessarily more uh, you're paying fees and all of that but there's just different aspects and features that these program managers are able to offer that make them look a lot more like an investment fund than you would see with other direct staking methods but of course there's money transmission laws right and money service business laws that allow for custodians to accept funds or digital assets and move them to another person or location on behalf of the user. And that's not necessarily investment activity. And so there's, there's a world where you could have these programs offered by exchanges, which are licensed and registered as money transmitters to just move the assets from one place to another, move it into the deposit contract on behalf of the user. But there is this question of whether adding on the feature of additional getting past this idea of you having to have 32 ETH and providing fixed rates return, all these other features whittle down what's happening there to make it look more like investment activity as opposed to money transmission. That makes a lot of sense, Mike. So what you're saying is that there's characteristics of the Kraken program specifically that the SEC took issue with, but that's not a broad indictment of staking writ large and non-custodial staking or direct node operation really shouldn't be impacted by anything that came of the Kraken settlement. There's not a precedent that would impact people who are participating in, in a materially different way. Fair summary? 
That's right. The SEC tends to operate in an incremental way, and so we don't know what they're going to do next. But just reading into this one case, there are very specific facts that the SEC focused on, and Kraken chose to settle here. That's a really important point. This isn't precedent. This isn't law. Kraken's not admitting or denying any of these allegations. Kraken chose to settle, and that's that. There are others that are going to maybe even offer similar programs, and they can litigate that issue if the SEC brings an action against them. And the SEC's not necessarily right here, I think, that, but it's just important to acknowledge that there's a spectrum of different types of staking programs and, and staking applications and uses. And not all of those are going to fit within the same rubric of what the SEC is looking at in that action. Yeah, great point. The other thing that came out recently that I wanted to get your take on was this proposed adjustment to custodial rules, which I don't think was intended to be exclusively related to digital assets, but it seems that people have taken it to have fairly material implications if the proposed rule becomes an actual rule, that it will change how most of the custodial platforms in the crypto ecosystem are operating. Can you talk to us about what's inside that proposed rule? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the SEC has been working on this rule for almost a decade now. It's not certainly a crypto exclusive rule. It, re it relates to all custody of assets by registered investment advisors. But what the rule impacts in terms of crypto relates to registered advisors, such as you know many venture capital funds, many hedge funds, and, and other funds in the space that meet the definition of a registered investment advisor and have registered with the SEC. They have to custody their assets with a qualified custodian. And the definition of asset under this proposed rule is broader than what's currently required to be within scope. So currently today, all security Securities and funds must be custodied with a qualified custodian. The new definition uh, is just this, this kind of securities, funds, and other positions, which is encompassing of crypto assets, even if they're non-securities. And the SEC had this statement in the preamble that most, if not all, uh, crypto assets are likely to be funds or securities anyway, which many of us take issue with, including the, the CFTC, frankly, and regulating many of the stable coins and Ether as non-securities as well as Bitcoin. But the implication here is that many of these registered investment advisors are now going to have to keep all of their crypto with a qualified custodian. And there are very few of these out there today. And many are, are kind of operating in the assumption that they meet that definition, but there's no certainty that all of them meet it. And Chair Gensler has, has made the allegation that many of these may not. It, certain alleged qualified custodians have said, look, we're qualified custodians today. We qualified custodians tomorrow. And Chair Gensler said, well, not so fast. I, I don't know if you're even qualified custodians today. The problem here, though, is even if we acknowledge that only potentially Anchorage and some federally chartered banks would meet this definition, making it a very limited universe of qualified custodians, none of these really are offering exchanges. And so all of these registered investment advisors would effectively be prohibited from trading on exchanges unless these exchanges are able to meet that definition. And the way that most of these are set up today, if we're assuming, for example, that New York trust companies and speedies and other state chartered institutions meet this definition, which is, as I said, a not a short thing, those tend to not operate exchanges. They're just custodians. They have a separate subsidiary or affiliate that operates the exchange platform. And so it's not clear that these registered investment advisors could trade on exchanges. That's an important point. Certainly DeFi similarly is off limits because you're not able to access that except through a qualified custodian. And there's not really the, the infrastructure and functionality and ability to just go trade in DeFi because these qualified custodians need to have possession and control of the assets. And so when you're deploying them into Compound or Aave or any other DeFi protocol, there's going to be this issue of whether you really have that possession and control 
control whether the assets are now in a smart contract as opposed to with the custodian. And so it just invites all these issues and really makes it a challenge for many of the RIAs to participate in crypto. And so th there's been this sentiment that the SEC really seems to just be discouraging participation by institutions in the asset class altogether by making it very difficult, if not impossible, to participate. That is a pretty radical shift in the way the model operates today. And, and actually, you bring up a topic that I was interested, maybe we can close out on, which is DeFi. What should we expect? I mean, this, this point you just made related to custodial, non-custodial, like what is it when I deposit an asset into a smart contract? Have I given up ownership or custody of that to the smart contract or the entity behind the smart contract? I mean, I think that's an interesting one to wrestle with a little bit. But more broadly, I haven't seen a lot of people talking about DeFi regulation, even in Europe, the Mika package punted on DeFi as a topic and said, hey, we want to see the ecosystem develop a little further before we bring together more focused or concentrated regulation. What's your opinion on, on what we'll see this year related to DeFi? Mika is interesting in that they've pushed off all consideration of DeFi so that they can take the time to study it and really develop a framework that works because DeFi is the most complicated area within crypto because you have disintermediation, non-intermediated financial services, and grappling with this question of how we regulate that is so novel to all of the regulators in, the, in the, across the world, really, because all of our regulations are, are founded on this assumption that there's some intermediary, some throat to choke that can kind of be regulated, and therefore we can indirectly regulate all of this stuff that happens around around that. For example, just discussing the custody rule, regulating the custodian or regulating the exchange platform. In DeFi, that doesn't really work because you have developers that develop software, they push it to the chain, the software can operate autonomously. In many cases, they're not necessarily an admin key or some sort of controller that, that's governing that contract, and it might just operate autonomously, which is one of the issues we saw in, in the recent tornado cash debacle. And so that, that creates a, a huge challenge for regulators, but it also creates an opportunity, I think, for the industry to really educate and work together collaboratively with regulators and lawmakers to develop a sensible framework that really looks to what this unique industry is, which is an industry of developers, potentially platform operators and others that are interconnecting with that. But the obligations on these platform operators, for example, they're there are many of these centralized custodians that allow access to DeFi or offer a DeFi product. We could see a world where there's disclosure around certain things, but to regulate it in the same way that we regulate centralized intermediate financial service, uh, it seems very problematic. And it's questionable what the regulators are going to do here if we don't get a legislative package. The path that many regulators have followed has been this enforcement path where they're not sure what to do with it. There aren't clear rules around it. And so they're just going to apply the existing laws and regulations to this novel technology. And so we've seen, for example, recently, both the SEC and CFTC brought enforcement actions in connection with some market manipulation related to the ecosystem. And there's allegations that the governance around that protocol was illusory made by the SEC. And so we're seeing kind of this, this whittling away of a lot of the decentralized architecture by the regulators and looking past that where they're saying these are essentially alter egos of the developers. And that, that's what happened also in, in a recent case brought by the CFTC against the, the Uki DAO, where the CFTC is essentially saying the founders created this thing, they pushed it off to a DAO, but the DAO was really just an alter ego of the founders, and they were trying to de-risk the obligation to register with the CFTC by doing that. And I think we'll see a lot of these similar actions brought against development companies as well as DAOs by the, the regulators making these arguments. But in, in the cases where there's true decentralization, 
decentralization, I, I think that's going to be a challenge for some of these regulators to, to win those cases. Yeah, I mean, that's something for the project teams to really think about is, is are they decentralized in name or in reality? Can you imagine a scenario where DeFi ends up becoming really financial scaffolding or infrastructure that are used by regulated companies exclusively. And this idea of you know you or I directly interacting with a DEX or one of the other popular kind of DeFi type platforms directly just goes away as a result of the regulatory approach. There's definitely a view that some of the, the wallets and the protocol front ends should be regulated as, as some sort of financial services platform. In the world of CFTC regulation and, and securities regulation, that might look more like a broker dealer and introducing broker where you're connecting into the protocols. But really, these are open protocols um, that can be deployed on chain and really operate on their own. And, and of course, anybody's free to build a tool that allows you to access that. And so I, I think it would be very tricky for the regulators to to take this approach. Of course, they could try and sue everybody that puts out one of these applications, but it really does harken back to the days of Napster and BitTorrent and some of these early peer-to-peer file sharing protocols where it's impossible to shut all of them down. We can create opportunities for more regulated above board activity through blue chip applications. So we've got Apple Music, we've got Spotify, we've got all of these platforms that have emerged out of this era of peer-to-peer where we all feel comfortable because there's not the risk of download some computer virus when you're trying to download an mp3 file, you can safely play in that space. And I think we'll see the same thing ultimately emerge, but the regulators need to accommodate and really be willing to work with the industry. And, and there's certainly going to be, as I mentioned before, maybe disclosures around, hey, you're accessing this third party protocol, the wallet that you're using going to potentially be able to mitigate some risk of you getting rugged through uh, you know, some scam protocol. So if you use some of the Web3 wallets out there, they have the official applications that they're plugged in with. And so you're not going to end up on a phishing OpenSea website. And that's helpful, I think. But there's no way that we can comprehensively regulate this space in the same way that we regulate financial markets today. And I think it's foolish to think that we can just in the same way it it was impossible to prevent BitTorrent file sharing. It's just a a matter of creating a space where people are primarily going to gather and and use these applications and having some reasonable regulations and guardrails around that. But it's going to be a fool's errand for these regulators to just sue everybody and try and shut it down the United States. It'll just go offshore. I love your optimism because I'm old enough to remember when Napster was filing lawsuits against individuals who were file sharing, or rather the, the music companies were filing against Napster users and you know managed to get legislation passed, the, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And I definitely don't want to go back to those, those bad old days. I'm looking forward to your optimistic outlook on this. Mike, you've been a terrific guest. Thanks so much for sharing all this knowledge. I learned a lot today. It's been an awesome discussion. Thanks for having me. Hey there. Thanks for listening to another episode of Public Key. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and our newly launched TikTok, where we share our favorite moments captured in this podcast and other great content from the Chainalysis team. And if you're into crypto policy and financial compliance, I bet you'll enjoy our new YouTube show, Know Your Crypto Compliance, which is hosted by my colleague, Caitlin Barnett. It's been a wild few weeks in the normally boring world of business banking as Silicon Valley Bank was closed by regulators and 
for a moment, it appeared that hundreds of startups would at least temporarily lose access to their corporate treasuries. Also banked at SVB was a portion of the reserves behind USDC, the very popular stablecoin. At the peak of the panic, USDC was trading at 87 cents on the dollar before rebounding as the FDIC and US Treasury calmed fears about availability of funds. Check out the show notes for the link to the blog where the Chainalysis team explores the on-chain activity during this period. 